We are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we have made our way to chapter 6, so if you'd be finding that, we will read uh, verses shortly. Rejected. It's one of the most exciting plays in basketball, along with the slam dunk. It is one of the two plays that can get the home crowd up off of their feet and cheering when an opposing player is on the way to the basket, thinking that he has an easy bucket only for the inside big man to come out of nowhere and swat the ball into the first row of the crowd. But that's really the only time we like the idea of being rejected. Virtually every other arena of life, we don't want to be rejected. Halls had their prom this past Friday night. If by chance some of you asked somebody to go to that prom and you got rejected, It's probably a bit too soon for me to bring that up. You're still hurt over it. Teenagers don't like to be rejected when they ask someone out on a date. We don't want to receive the rejection letter to the college of our dreams. We certainly do not want to talk about a job interview or a possible promotion only to be rejected for that advancement. We don't want to see the word plastered over our mortgage application or our new car loan. And we certainly don't want to be rejected when it comes to entrance into the kingdom of God for eternity someday. We have this unspoken idea that being part of the family of God, as long as we are faithful in being part of the family of God, that that means things will by and large go our way. Though unspoken, it comes out in subtle forms. For example, you will occasionally hear of a couple who is moving from one side of town to another or moving out of town to take another job, and they will tell their friends, I I knew God was in it because the house sold so quickly. In other words, there is that underlying belief that when it is God's will, He will pave the way and make everything go smoothly. A ministry leader believes that he or she is on the right path because money keeps pouring in and the people keep showing up. So often in the church, we have this same underlying mentality that if it is God's will and we are striving to do it according to His plan and according to His purpose, then shouldn't everything go along well? I mean, doesn't God want to bless us for our faithfulness and for our commitment? After all, we are seeking to advance His kingdom, not ours. So it makes sense to conclude that He would pave the way for us. Because of that underlying belief, we struggle when we face rejection. When we try to get people to our Sunday school class and they ignore us, when we try to entice people to come to whatever ministry activity we have going on, and they say they're going to come, but they don't, or when we invite them to the worship service time and time again, and they refuse to come, we wonder why God isn't giving us success in the ministry that we are striving to do for Him. To top it all off, we can look around our country and see some of the very largest of churches who are clearly not preaching the gospel faithfully. And yet they continue to pack the pews every single week. And there are other churches who, by all all indications, have been faithful through the years, and yet they are closing their doors one after another, never to be opened again. Now, those are general statements, mind you. 
I am not trying to say that every large church is not preaching the gospel, nor am I saying that every small church has been faithful through the years. Those are merely examples. My point is simply that being in God's will and doing things God's way does not always equal success, at least from an earthly standpoint. In fact, sometimes, rather than success, we might face rejection, both in this life and in our ministries. And again, because we have that underlying belief then, when we do face rejection, it makes it all the harder to handle. This morning, we are going to look at three episodes in the life and ministry of Jesus. All three are going to have this common element of rejection. We're going to see Jesus rejected, we're going to see His disciples rejected, and we're going to see John, the forerunner of Christ, rejected as well. Now, because these are separate episodes, I'm going to read them separately. That is, we'll read one, talk about it, and then come back and read the other. But all are tied together with this idea of being rejected, reminding us that in life and in ministry, being a disciple of Jesus Christ does not exempt us from rejection. In fact, it might lead us right into it. Let's start with Mark chapter 6, the first six verses, where we'll see that Jesus is rejected at home. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So we begin with a story of Jesus in his hometown, and we find that he faces rejection at home. I mean, the one place where you would expect to be accepted, the one place where they are supposed to welcome you no matter what, the one place where love is supposed to overcome a multitude of sins, not that Jesus sinned, of course, but I'm simply saying this is the place of all places where he should expect to go and be welcomed, and yet he finds rejection. And it is therefore all the harder to deal with. Rejection where you don't expect it is rejection that is hard to handle. He's back in his hometown. Mark does not tell us specifically, but we know this to be, of course, Nazareth, which is a city about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, where we have spent a large majority of our time so far in the gospel. Nazareth is a very small place. It had only at max 500 residents at this time. Many of them were Gentiles. It's it's often called the Galilee of the Gentiles. Nazareth was so insignificant that it's never mentioned in the Old Testament. 
It is never mentioned by Josephus, the Jewish historian. It is a city that is never mentioned in rabbinical literature like the Mishnah and the Talmud. I mean, it is such an insignificant and small, out-of-the-way place that nobody talks about it, and yet it is the place where Jesus grew up. And it remained the hometown of his family, including at least four brothers and multiple sisters. In fact, you may recall the story where Jesus is calling his first disciples, and he, and he calls a man by the name of Philip. And Philip is so excited about Jesus calling him and the fact that he has met Jesus that he goes and gets a buddy of his named Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel, we have found him whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Do you remember Nathaniel's response? Nathaniel's response tells us what people thought of this city of Nazareth. Nathaniel looks at Philip and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, there's nothing there. And yet it was Jesus' hometown, the place where he played in the streets as a boy. It was here that he worked alongside his father Joseph as a carpenter. And by the way, that word carpenter does not necessarily mean what we think it means today as a carpenter. It's a word that actually means someone who, who works or puts things together, who makes things. So it doesn't have to be just a woodworker. It can be a stonemason or a host of other manual labor jobs. We simply believe Jesus was a carpenter in our sense of the word because that's the way the early church took it. But the truth is we don't know exactly what he did. But we do know that he followed along with his father. A father had four responsibilities in the first century toward his son. Number one, he was to have that son circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. Secondly, he was to teach that child, that son, the law, the Torah. Deuteronomy makes that very clear. Thirdly, he was supposed to train him in a manual job. And fourthly, he was responsible for procuring that son a wife. Now, this appears to be the second trip of Jesus to his hometown of Nazareth, and it would be his last if that is true, that is, there were two trips, Luke tells us about the first one, and it is very similar. Jesus is there on a Sabbath, and he goes into a synagogue. I reminded you last week that the, the activities in the synagogue were done by lay people. And so the, the reputation of Jesus has preceded him. People know about his teaching. They've heard about his miracles. And now that he is in town, they, they invite him to speak. And so in that situation, he reads from Isaiah the prophet, and then he sits down. He closes up the scroll and he sits down. It was customary to stand while they read and yet sit while they teach. And so Jesus sits down and then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They first spoke well of him, but it didn't take long for the tide of public opinion to turn and they were filled with wrath. They were so angry with him that they drove him out of the synagogue and up to a cliff, intending to throw him off that cliff to his death, but they were not able. And now he is back in his hometown a second time, this time with his disciples, telling us that this is not a family visit. He's not there to check on mom or his brothers and sisters. He is there for ministry. And so once again, we find him in the synagogue, and he is teaching in the synagogue, he is known by the people. His ministry has preceded him, and they immediately begin to ask questions. 
Questions not about the material that he's teaching, but questions about the source and authority behind his teaching and his miracles. Who has given him the ability to say what he's saying and to do what he is doing? It just does not match up with what they know about him. His resume does not explain his abilities. He does not have the proper credentials. He has never sat under the feet of a prominent rabbi. He has not been taught by the law, of the law by prominent religious leaders. He has never been apprenticed to them. He is just a carpenter. And we know who his family is. So we know he didn't get his wisdom from some rabbi. And we know he didn't get his wisdom from home because we know Joseph and we know Mary. And his brothers and sisters are just normal, everyday Nazareth residents just like we are. In fact, they might even be worse, to be quite honest with you. It wasn't normal for a man to be referred to as the son of his mother. In a patristic society, it was normally referenced toward the father. Now, some say that this is because Joseph was dead, and that's a possibility, but it wasn't even normal when the father was dead. So for them to say that Jesus is the son of Mary is taken by most to be a derogatory statement. In fact, it might even be a reference to the ongoing rumor that Jesus was an illegitimate child. There is simply nothing about his background to lead them to believe that Jesus has the anointing of God upon him, and so they don't. They reject him rather than accept and believe. Perhaps they were jealous. The small town boy has gone out and made a name for himself, and he has come back, and they are envious, they are critical, and they are offended at him. He's just come back to lord it over us and show us how good he's done out in the world. We actually have a saying for this in the South. We have a saying for a lot of things in the South. The saying goes, don't get above your raising. Ricky Skaggs, the great bluegrass musician and singer, has a song by that title, Don't Get Above Your Raising, Stay Down to Earth with Me. We don't want people going beyond where we've gone. We don't want them acting differently from the way they were raised. And that's what we see in part taking place here. Jesus has come back to his hometown, and they are not happy with him. They know who he is. They know where he's come from. They know the way he was brought up. He is no better than they are. And in response, Jesus takes a saying that was prominent at the time and applies it to himself. Look at verse 4 again. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. When I first started in the ministry when I was young, I was a college student, and I found out that the church that I had gone to in high school, I really just went there two years. We moved at the beginning of my junior year to South Carolina, and we started attending this church and and joined. And so I went there two years and then went off to college. But my second year in college, I found out they were looking for a uh, somebody to lead their youth group for the summer. That's the way small churches did it back then. They, they didn't have someone around the clock or around the year. They just hired someone to work with the youth in the summer. And so I applied, but I did not get the job. And I remember either the pastor or a leader, I'm not sure who said it, but I remember it. They said to me, they quoted this verse. 
They said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Now, they did not say that because they thought I was a prophet. Far from it. They said that because they knew what I was in high school. And I was just a few years removed from high school, and therefore they did not think it was wise for me, a few years removed from what they knew me to be, to lead their youth in the church. And so I didn't get the job. I wound up getting another one in another church across town. But I've always remembered this verse as a result. And the result here in Nazareth was that Jesus could not do many miracles because of their unbelief. He did some, he healed a few people, but he did not do in his hometown what he did in so many other places. This does not mean that he was not able. This is not the case where they simply would not let him do something or somehow they had stolen his spiritual mojo. He could have done whatever he wanted to do, but he chose not to do the works there because of their unbelief. Remember, the primary ministry of Jesus and John, for that matter, is the proclamation of the Word of God that the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe. And they were not going to believe because their hearts were hard toward Him, therefore He does not do the works there. Now we know that later on, some of His brothers at least did believe. We know that uh, James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem and writes the book, that bears his name. We know in all likelihood that Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the brother of Jesus, is the same man that we know of as Jude who writes the book by his name. But Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Virtually every else, everywhere else we've seen Jesus, they are marveling at him, astonished at what he's saying and doing. But in his hometown, he is the one that marvels. One of only two times in the Gospels where Jesus is said to marvel or be amazed at someone else, the other time being the faith of a centurion. But here, it is at the hardness of the hearts of those who should know Him the best. This is not only a reminder that we too can be rejected, maybe even at home. I mean, Jesus Himself said that His coming will pit family members against family members fathers against sons, mothers against daughters, and on and on the list goes because we have to make a decision as to whether we are going to follow Christ or not, and that decision is often divisive. But it's not just a reminder that we might face rejection. It is also a warning, a warning that it is possible to be close to Jesus and yet not really know who He is. Familiarity breeds contempt, we say. And maybe we could change that just a little bit if I'm able and say familiarity breeds unbelief. It is possible to be so close to Jesus that we don't know Jesus. It is possible to hear the stories enough times that they no longer amaze us. I mean, is it possible that when you come to church Sunday after Sunday and hear the amazing things that Jesus did and said, you sort of go away ho-hum? I've heard that before. Nothing really amazing about that any longer. Is it possible that in two weeks there will be many more people in this sanctuary and others like it in this city and around our country and they have come to celebrate what we call Easter and yet 
They will not marvel at the resurrection. They will not be changed by the resurrection. They have just come out of habit or tradition or whatever other reason brings them, and yet they know the stories about Jesus, but they do not know him. Is it possible that describes you? Is it possible that you are like one of these in his hometown who know all the stories about him, but it just doesn't move you any longer? Well, we need to move to our second story. Not only do we see that Jesus is rejected at home, but we see that his disciples are rejected in ministry. Verse 7, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So our second story moves us not to rejection of Jesus at home, but rejection throughout the villages of Jesus' disciples in ministry. Now, Mark doesn't exactly tell us how these men were received on this trip. No doubt the response was mixed. In fact, we're not even told about their return until we get down to verse 30. Look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And this you recognize by now is another example of Mark sandwiching one story in the middle of another. Right in, He sends the disciples out, then Mark tells us the third story that we're going to look at in a moment, and that is the death of John. Then he tells us that these disciples came back. And I think that tells us, at least in part, that those who desire to be disciples of Christ, those who want to follow in his footsteps, need to take a long, hard look at John. And we'll do that in just a moment. He sends the disciples out in pairs which is still a good practice. It is good for safety and security. It is good for encouragement and consolation. It was also the practice at the time, you know that the Old Testament says that a matter needed to be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. That is, the testimony of one would not suffice. And so Jesus sends them out in pairs according to the custom. Now, we might protest that these disciples are not ready to go out. Based on what we've seen and heard already, they are not ready to go out on their own in pairs in the name of Christ, and we might be right in that. And yet, while that is true, that they do in fact have much more to learn, Jesus gives them authority and sends them out. After all, they are not going out alone. They are not even going out in pairs. They are going out in the name and having been commissioned and empowered and ultimately equipped by Christ. They are not going out in their own name. They are going out not with their own message. They are going out as His representatives. And that is why their proclamation is the same as His and the same as John's. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. If we wait until we feel competent to go out in ministry, if we wait until we are comfortable with every ministry experience and situation, we will never go out. 
We will continue to sit. And frankly, there have been enough Christians who have sat for most of their lives because they do not feel competent and prepared. And yet there is a time when we must go and no longer sit. I'm not opposed to seminars and classes. I'm not opposed to Sunday school and discipleship. We need all of those things. But all of those things are in preparation for sending us out into the mission field. And we must not merely sit. We must also go. Now, Jesus is very specific about what they are to take and what they are not to take. And I am not going to spend the time going into the details of these things. You can read that for yourself. But I will tell you that the four items that he tells them to take are identical to the four items that God told the Israelites to take as they were coming out of Egypt. The point being that they are going on an urgent mission and therefore they should do so with the barest of supplies. That way, along the way, they must trust. Even as the Israelites had to trust in their daily provisions in the wilderness, so these disciples are going to have to trust in God as they move from village to village proclaiming His message. And in a a culture that prized hospitality, they were to accept that hospitality when they went into the various villages. And they were to stay in the home that they were welcomed in until they left that village. And this speaks of contentment. That is, they were not to go into a village and constantly be looking around for better lodging. When they went into a village and they got a home to stay in, they were to stay. And the reason he's talking about that is because it speaks of contentment. For example, suppose we had a visiting preacher or missionary who was coming to our church for a week-long series of things, and, and I said to him, why don't you just stay at our house? I can kick one of the kids out of their bedrooms, and you can have their bedroom for, for the week. It's no problem. And they do that for a day or two, and then they find out that one of you has a beautiful home on the lake that you're not using. And now you've offered that visiting preacher the use of your lake house which is two or three times the size of my house and has a much better view. And so you offer them that, and they take you up on that. Now they have offended me because I gave them hospitality, and they found something better. That's what Jesus is warning about there. Be content with where you stay. Don't be constantly looking for something else. The bottom line here in all of these specific instructions is simplicity of lifestyle and contentment with the provisions that God has given you principles that are still applicable to our lives today, though the specific principles for this missionary journey were not carried forward into future missionary journeys in the early church, nor are they today. Jesus empowers them to cast out demons and to heal the sick. The only new element being the use of, an, of oil to anoint the sick. It's only found here and in James. You know that olive oil was very prominent for a variety of reasons in the first century. They used it for food. They used it for anointing. They used it for sacrifice. They used it for fuel in lamps. And they used it for medicinal purposes. And here it is clearly symbolic of the power and authority of Jesus. 
So there's nothing wrong with training. I mean, you know that when we send out missionaries, especially long-term missionaries, they go out and they have much training, even as our newest appointees are in Richmond, Virginia right now receiving training, and they will continue to receive training after they go out on the field. They will learn language, they will learn the culture, and this will go on for years. And so it is not that Jesus is against training or against providing It is simply that he wants them to learn on this short-term mission trip. That's what this is. This is a short-term mission trip. He wants them to learn to trust in God and depend upon the provisions that he has given them. Reminding them and us that the proclamation of the message is the focal point. And we get the hint that there might, uh, might's not the word, that there will be rejection along the way when we come to verse 11. In verse 11, he says, if you go into a village and they do not receive you, they do not listen to you, then leave there. And when you leave, shake the dust off of your feet, a symbolic act. So what does that mean? Well, in this time when a Jew had traveled outside of the promised land and then he returned, he would shake the dust off of his feet upon returning to the Holy Land because he did not want the Holy Land polluted from Gentile lands. And so Jews would knock the dust off of their feet. Jesus is using that and now he's saying when you go into a village, and many of these villages would have been filled with Jews. When you go into a village and they will not receive you, you treat them like Gentiles. You act like they are heathen, and you shake the dust off of your feet because they have rejected not you, but they've rejected me. And he's basically saying that they are not really part of the people of God, that there are actually people in the promised land who have not embraced the promised one, that there are children of Abraham who are not children of God, and by shaking the dust off their feet, they are declaring that this village has denied the coming Messiah and therefore are worthy of, of judgment because of their rejection of the gospel. Ministry is not always easy. Jesus made it very clear, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus made it very clear that if we come in his name and with his authority, we will not always be well received. So it should not surprise us when not everyone is warm to our message. For again, they are rejecting the one we come in his name, not us. But we are to keep going. Don't let the rejection by some keep you from proclaiming the message to all. So we've seen Jesus rejected at home, and we've seen his disciples, at least in part, rejected in ministry, which leads us to the third story, rejection by enemies. I mean, this is what we expect. We expect to be rejected by our enemies, and that's what we find here. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing 
that he was a righteous and holy man, yet he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, once again, we see rejection where we expect rejection to be rejection by enemies. This is the first time we've heard of John since way back in chapter 1 and verse 14 where we just have this passing reference now after John was arrested. But now we get the rest of the story and what a twisted story it is. It's like those afternoon soap operas that some of you watch and turn off when I come by for a visit. Uh, It's the same kind of thing here. And By the way, this is one of only two passages in all of the Gospel of Mark that is not about Jesus. Both of them are about John, the first eight verses of the gospel, and now this story about his death. King Herod had heard about Jesus. He no doubt has heard the stories. He's heard about the disciples perhaps ministering in the various villages, and these stories have come to his attention, and they're all trying to figure out who he is. There are three main answers to the question of who is this Jesus. Number one, he could be John the Baptist come back to life. Number two, he could be Elijah. After all, the Old Testament had closed with the book of Malachi predicting that Elijah was going to come before the Messiah. Or number three, he was a prophet, but not Elijah, just one of a prophet or in the line of the prophets, just another of one of the Old Testament prophets. Now, keep in mind, all three of these options are high opinions of Jesus. He's got to be at least a prophet, which reminds us that just because you hold a favorable opinion, even a high opinion of Jesus, does not mean that you know Him. It does not mean it is equivalent to faith. Now, while there is some debate among the people as to who Jesus is, Herod is convinced He knows that this is John the Baptist come back from the dead. No doubt a conclusion based not on fact or truth, but based on his guilty conscience. He knows that he has put John to death. He knows that John is a righteous and innocent man, and therefore his conscience is giving him problems. I mean, he can't be John the Baptist come to life if you'd have known anything about Jesus and John. Remember, John baptized Jesus. How could Jesus be John come back if their ministries overlapped and John baptized Jesus? This tells us that Herod and many others did not know much about the life and ministry of John and Jesus. Now, Mark calls him King Herod, though he was actually no king at all. 
He was a tetrarch, meaning that he was in charge of one quarter of the kingdom of his father. When Herod the Great, his father, died, his kingdom was divided among four sons in four parts, and this is Herod Antipas, who is tetrarch of Galilee. He reigned from uh, the 4th B.C. until 39 A.D. He was initially married to the daughter of Eratos, who was king of Nabatea, which was east of the Dead Sea. But he got rid of that wife, and he convinced Herodias to get rid of her husband, who happened to be his brother, Philip, and the two of them then married. Even though Leviticus is very clear that it is unlawful to marry the wife of your brother while your brother is still alive. She was also his niece because she was the granddaughter of Herod the Great from another wife. And John, as a prophet of God, told him so. John did not wake up in the morning and decide what he was going to say on the basis of public opinion polls. John's ministry wasn't designed to cater to some special interest group. He didn't gauge the potential success of his ministry based on what he said or did not say. As a prophet, he spoke the truth, urging people to repent, and yes, that even meant the royal family. But that had landed him in hot water. So he was arrested by Herod while Herodias plotted to kill him. Herod knew him to be innocent and actually wanted to listen to him. He was intrigued by the things that John said, and so he gladly listened to him. Though, once again, this does not equal repentance and faith. This is mere fascination. But Herodias was patiently plotting behind the scenes, reminding us that there is indeed no fury like a woman scorned. And so the opportunity arises when Herod has a birthday party. And all of the leading men are there, military leaders, social leaders, religious leaders. They are all gathered alike to celebrate with Herod. And so Herodias sends in her daughter, whom Josephus identifies as Salome, to dance for the drunken guests. And in all likelihood, based on the reception that she receives, this is a seductive dance done by a young lady who is probably in her mid-teens at this point. Her mother's plot to murder John is more important than her own purity and her own dignity. So Herod is pleased, as is his guest, and he wants to give her a gift in response, and he gives her the proverbial up to half my kingdom. That doesn't mean he was literally going to give her half the kingdom. It just means uh, you are going to be the recipient of a generous gift. What do you want? So what would any teenage girl want? She goes to her mother. Her mother knows exactly what she should want. All of this, of course, reminds us of the drama in Esther in the Old Testament where the same line is used up to half of my kingdom, and it too reveals an evil plot. But in this case, the the daughter goes to mom. Mom tells her exactly what she wants, and long story short, the evil deed is done. Herod didn't want to do it, but he was not about to go against his word in front of all of the leaders of his kingdom. There are also some similarities here with the Old Testament story of Ahab and Jezebel, a story that I will reference again tonight. And in fact, Herodias is often called the New Testament Jezebel. In case you're interested, a few years later in A.D. 36, Herod Antipas was attacked by Aratos, 
Remember, Aratos was the one whose daughter he was married to, but jilted her to marry Herodias. So in response, he attacked Herod Antipas some years later for forsaking his daughter. And three years after that, Herodias convinces Herod Antipas for the second time to urge Rome to make him a king. He's made the Jewish people in Galilee call him king, but he's not. And so for the second time, he asked Rome to bestow this title upon him. Rome does not do it, and instead Rome, the emperor Caligula, banishes him and Herodias to Gaul. And so they are punished for what they have done. And like the valiant men, when we come back to our story of Jabesh Gilead, who come and take King Saul's body, John's disciples come and take his body for a proper burial as well. But what really bothers us about this story is not the details. What really bothers us about this story is why John was rejected and killed in the first place. I mean, Jesus had performed many miracles. He had power and authority to do all sorts of things. That reference that I gave you earlier when he was in Nazareth for the first time and in the synagogue and he reads the prophet Isaiah, what he read there was the passage where he says, you know, the blind are going to receive their sight, the lame are going to walk, and the captives will be released. Jesus said, today this has been fulfilled. He's called John the greatest man ever to be born of a woman in spite of the fact that John's ministry only lasted about a year. In spite of the fact that John, according to our records, has never performed a single miracle, and in spite of the fact that John is dead by the time he's 30, Jesus calls him the greatest prophet and the greatest man born of woman, and yet he allows him to die in spite of the fact that he himself says, I have come to set the captives free. And John is a captive, and Jesus does not set him free. Why? I don't know that I can completely answer that question, but I will give you at least part of the answer in two forms. First of all, we who are disciples of Christ, as I said earlier, must deal with the reality of rejection. I think that is why Mark inserts the story of the death of John in the middle of sending out the disciples and before they return. Because it is a reminder to us and to them that we might face rejection as well. That when we go out in the name and in the authority of Christ, we may not be received in a good manner. And yes, that might even include rejection to the point of martyrdom and death. John was certainly not the last to suffer such a fate. And men and women around the world continue to follow Christ in spite of the possibility of death, and yes, men and women around the world, even to this day, are still killed for their faith. And just because we do not face that kind of persecution and suffering in America, we need to make sure that we don't dumb down this message and think that it doesn't happen, because it does. John was not the first, or John was not the last, I should say. There are more. Tertullian's statement is continually true. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But the second reason I think we are learning this story is that because John is the forerunner of Christ, 
not just in his ministry, not just pointing to Jesus and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just looking to Jesus and saying, he must increase, but I must decrease as John fades out into the distance. But John is not just the forerunner of Jesus in ministry. John is the forerunner of Jesus in death. John, like Jesus, was executed by a political tyrant who feared the people and thus succumbed to societal pressures rather than do what is right. John, like Jesus, died silently as a victim of political intrigue and corruption. John, like Jesus, died as a righteous and innocent victim. I, don't, I do not mean John was sinless as Jesus was, but I do mean that John has done nothing worthy of death. So John's death right here in Mark chapter 6 is a foretaste of what we will get as we move further into John and we look at the week of the passion, ultimately going to the cross and the resurrection as we will do in the days ahead. In fact, I think we're going to skip ahead and talk about the triumphal entry next week, leading us to Easter the following week. All of this reminding us that discipleship is costly. Not nearly as costly to the one who died to provide it for us, but costly nevertheless. Now, we do understand that the rewards of discipleship in this life and beyond far outweigh any cost, but Jesus did say, count the cost. He said, it'd be foolish of you to start on such a journey and not count the cost. But if you'll fix your eyes on Jesus, you'll discover that no cost is too great to follow him. And so in closing, I simply want to ask you, are you admiring Jesus from afar or are you following him no matter what the cost might be? Let's pray.